So again, may I say good morning to our brothers and sisters here at Elk Point Baptist Church and to everyone who may be joining with us online. Maybe you weren't able to make it out because of weather conditions or whatever it might be. Um, Maybe I should be saying with Paul, good morning to the saints of the Lakeland. This morning we are on to our second week in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you are reading Paul's letters, you will recognize that most of them have an initial address, kind of the from and the to section, and then that's followed by a declaration or prayer of thanksgiving for that particular church. Lord willing, we're going to get to Paul's declaration and prayer of thanksgiving in verses 15 and following in a few weeks. But in his letter to the saints in Ephesus and the surrounding area, Paul begins a little bit differently. Most of us are familiar with the term eulogy. And the first word of our passage today in the original language is the word from which eulogy is taken. In our culture, eulogy is a time to praise or commend or speak well of someone who has passed. And Paul wants to open his letter with a clear focus and clear um, purpose in mind. And like I'd said last week, the first three chapters of Ephesians is very theology heavy. It's the what we believe before we get to the how we go about our belief. And to that end, Paul would start with a declaration of praise to God. And remember from last week too that Ephesus was a pagan capital with this gigantic temple to Diana or Artemis, depending on whether you were Roman or Greek. And right away in this letter, he makes it clear that it is not of this lowercase g God or any other worldly deity that he speaks. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repeatedly throughout this letter, you have Paul referring to God as Father. And often he'll use the full phrase, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship and the interconnection of the Father and of the Son is on full display here. And very shortly, we also get into a healthy dose of the work of God the Spirit as well. The book of Ephesians has some great Trinitarian theology, the work of all three members of the Godhead. Anyway, Paul opens with this eulogia, this declaration of praise to God. And this morning we're going to deal with just the first of three parts of that, and it contains one of the things for which Paul wants to give God glory. I ask that you would read our passage with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 3 and going down to verse 6. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 and going to verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we want to say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, O God, for you have done incredible things. You have proven yourself to be a great God and the great God of the entire universe. There is no God that mankind can conjure up or the spirits of the enemy can attempt to replace you. You are the one and only God. You are the only one through whom blessings flow. And Lord, we take all things from your hand knowing that you are eternally sovereign and good and gracious and just and holy. And Lord, as we spend our time in your word this morning, as we attempt to understand what Paul means here, we just ask that you would give us clarity of thought and of heart, that you would help us to lay aside preconceived notions of what we would like to believe and that we would take your truth as it comes from the word. And Lord, if there is anything that I have to say that would contradict that, that that would fall by the wayside, Lord, and that the people of this church would take what I say and compare it to your truth. Give us hearts that desire your truth more than anything any earthly pastor or speaker or teacher or any of those things have to say. May your word be our sole guide and manual for the Christian life and faith. Reveal yourself to us by your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for your goodness, and we bless your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 3 gives us kind of the purpose statement for this passage. And this passage, if you kind of put it all together, it extends all the way down to verse 14. Depending on who you read and who you ask, this is very close to one long run-on sentence from verse 3 right down to verse 14. But there is some clear division of thought. The first going down to verse 6, and then there's kind of some crossover between verse 6, and that runs down to verse 10. And then finally, verses 11 and following down to verse 14. And in each of these, Paul has something to say. And each of these, Paul is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for one or more of the spiritual blessings that God has given. In doing so, in blessing God for how he has blessed his people, Paul acknowledges that Every spiritual blessing, all heavenly blessing, comes from the Father, specifically from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other source of divine blessing. There is no other God from which this flows. Think of to whom it is that Paul is writing. 
These are believers living in a society that was both polytheistic. There were an entire pantheon of gods that they could choose from. And they were also syncretistic, which means they would adopt the gods of other religions and say, okay, bring in some of your god here and some of your god here. I mean, even the great temple was a temple of Artemis and or Diana, both from different pantheons, but both worshipped in the same way. So Paul's writing to a group of people that are used to there being many gods, and if there's another god that kind of piques your fancy, well, bring them along for the ride as well. So Paul wants to leave no doubt here that it is from this one God from whom all of these heavenly blessings descend. There is not, you don't get some blessings from this God and some blessings from that God and then from our God, from Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you get these other ones. No, it is from the God the Father of Jesus Christ, from whom every heavenly blessing flows. And the first of these blessings is what we're going to focus on this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first thing that Paul wants to praise his God for is that God would choose us. His first question might be, well, who is us? And that's pretty easy for us to get to because it's included in the two section of this letter. The saints. Them being the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. God has chosen those whom are faithful in Christ Jesus. God has chosen the saints. Next obvious question is what it means that he has chosen us. Paul will deal with that in just a moment here. But first I want to look at this question for what purpose. When I go home this afternoon, I might choose to eat an apple. When you got up this morning, you chose what to wear. Maybe you chose it last night. Jesus, when he was starting his ministry, he chose his disciples. And all of these things that are chosen are chosen with a purpose in mind. An apple to satisfy hunger or a sweet tooth. Clothes to look presentable. Disciples to join Jesus in his ministry. Every choice is made with an eye to an effect. And God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That is in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I want to ask, why has God chosen His people? He has chosen that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And that is but a snippet of his purpose in choosing his people. And Paul wants to remind these Ephesians, even here in this letter, that part of God's effectual call on the life of his people is that they will be declared righteous, that they will gradually grow in faithfulness to God's commands, 
and that one day they will be made truly righteous upon their glorification. Unless we get too puffed up in ourselves and think, well, we have been declared righteous, we recognize that He has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless. And all of that holiness and blamelessness comes from our Lord. As important as it is to see what God has said here, it's as important in a lot of senses to see what He didn't say. He did not say He chose us because we are holy and blameless before Him. We do not earn God's favor by our own righteousness. We cannot drum up our own salvation by being good enough people that God would then choose us. Paul specifically wrote to Timothy that God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Later on in Ephesians 2, Paul's going to expand on this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no man may boast. We are not saved because of what we have done. You did not earn your own salvation. And nor does God look ahead to see what we will do. He calls us according to His purpose. He calls His people as a gift from Himself to His people. The spiritual blessing that God's people receive, as Paul is going to go on to explain, He grants according to His will and for His own glory. That brings us to the remainder of our passage. Verses 5 and 6. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The discussion of predestination and election has been a hot-button issue in the church for hundreds of years. And as many of you would already know, typically those who hold to the doctrines of predestination and election as we understand them are typically labeled as Calvinists based on the teachings of John Calvin. And while those who hold to mankind's essential free will are usually labeled Arminians after Jacobus Arminius, and there are a wide range of finer points and truths that would be argued that we don't have time to get into today between the Calvinists and the Arminians, that this whole predestination versus free will argument has become a core disagreement between these two groups. It's become a core differentiating topic of discussion between denominations between Christian brothers and sisters, so much so that some groups have utterly disavowed the other group as damnable heretics because they don't believe as we do. And we would say, 
you're not saved because you don't believe as I believe. And that is not our goal here. Our goal is not to drive wedges and to alienate brother from brother. And nor was that Paul's intention in his letter to the Ephesians. Indeed, one of the main focuses in the book of Ephesians is unity within the church. But within the church, we can't simply say, you believe your thing, and I'll believe mine. We don't have that option. We must pursue right belief. We must pursue the truth according to Scripture. And it is good that we pursue that truth. And it is good that we would disagree with one another over what is true so we can fight our way to what is true. A good brother of mine likes to say that if two people agree on everything, one of them is irrelevant. And the reality is, is we in the church are not going to agree on everything. All you have to do is come around to our Sunday school classes downstairs where we discuss the things that we find in Scripture, and you'll see every week there's some sort of disagreement as to this, that, or the other thing about what Scripture teaches us. And when I was doing my Bachelor of Ministry at Ambrose University, I had an introductory theology course my first semester out of the gate going into my Bachelor of Ministry. And the first major paper, our professor gave us a list of topics, and I'm kind of a young, gung-ho theology student with about this much knowledge under my hat, and you go, yeah, sure, that topic looks good. And my very, very first theology paper was on this topic, free will versus doctrine of predestination and election. I had no idea what I was getting into, no clue. And being a university-level course, there's, of course, this uh, expectation that you'll get into the original source material. So here I am, a, what was I, 19, 20-year-old young guy looking through 500-year-old books of what John Calvin had to say and what Arminius had to say and back and forth. And I was shocked to find that as I read the works of John Calvin, I went, you know what, this sounds pretty clear, pretty cut and dried from, from this perspective. I'm going to, yeah, that sounds about right. And the whole idea was to kind of pick a side in this argument. So I read that one, and all right, John Calvin, I got your side here. And then I started reading Arminius' works and went, well, he seems to have a pretty decent argument here, too. Which one am I going to choose? And I wish I could say that I was the incredibly studious type that spent weeks going back and forth and poring over every material I could find and coming to a solid Calvinistic conviction. But honestly, I was so overwhelmed in my first months of my degree that I begged to the viewpoint that prevailed in the institution, the more comfortable and more palatable viewpoint from our human perspective, that mankind's will must be totally free because 
I mean, what is mankind without free will? And that somehow God would choose his people based on a foreknowledge of how they would then respond. I had, after all, just read some very smart old dead theologians who argued quite convincingly for that standpoint. But later in my faith journey, and later in my training, I became convinced not by reading theologians' opinions of Scripture, but by reading Scriptures itself, that however comfortable or uncomfortable, palatable or unpalatable, the truth may be to my sensibilities, that when I see Scripture say something, that I should be asking myself whether I am having to kind of do some gymnastics to figure out how I can believe what it says. Some of you might be familiar with the old problem-solving technique from philosophy that's called Occam's Razor. And that philosophy says entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily. That means nothing to most of us. But simplified, it means that so long as a given solution does not contradict the facts, the simplest answer is usually the best. And oftentimes, that can be a valuable tool for us when we read Scripture. I've seen so many occasions where we've been reading Scripture and we come across something that we go, well, what does he mean by that? And if it's something that is easy and fits with kind of our own worldview, then we just take it at face value. Oh, he means what he says he means. But then there are other times where we come across something that goes, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if that seems to quite fit my framework here. What does he mean by that? And how can we kind of work with this so it makes sense? A simplified version of a Charles Spurgeon quote goes something like this. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion then defends itself. Now, Spurgeon never said it quite like this. He said it a few different ways over the years, and this is kind of the amalgamation of a few quotes. And this was particularly about defending the truths of Scripture to people who would contradict Scripture, but it applies here too, that when we read Scripture, it is best for us to let Scripture speak for itself. And when Scripture has something to say that we need not make excuses for it, we cannot make changes to it, and we must take Scripture for what it means to say. And it's in that situation where Occam's razor works so beautifully. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, probably what he said. If we truly believe the Scripture to be in the inerrant word of the Most High God, then when it says something, as long as it does not contradict itself, then we should not try to make it say anything else. An obvious pushback is that there are some things in Scripture that are difficult for us to interpret. And that is why we do see there are so many different 
branches and denominations and theological streams because there are some things that don't have clear, cut, and dried answers. We can become utterly convinced of one or the other, but then there are arguments the other way. Peter says as much in Second Peter when he's talking of Paul's letters, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And even when we were back in Hebrews, you might remember when the author of Hebrews is talking about, the, talking about Melchizedek, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. But just because something is hard to understand or hard to reconcile with one passage or another doesn't allow us to change the meaning. And all that to say that when we read our passage today, it says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There will be arguments to be made both ways on this. But as far as I'm concerned, when I look at it, that seems pretty clear as to what God did and how he did it. God chose us Because of his purpose. God chose us in his will. And to change it so that he chose us because he knew what we were going to choose. To change it so we read that in love he predestined us because he knew in advance that we would follow him. In my mind, that robs God of his glory and refuses to take Scripture at his word. And it might be easier to argue this if it was an isolated passage in Scripture left to stand on its own, but really it's not. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. These verses all speak to the fact that God is the initiating force. He is the sole determiner. He is the ground and basis and totality of our salvation. And yet God managed to do this in such a way that mankind's responsibility remains intact. I also just said that in some respect, to read man's involvement in his own predestination robs God of the glory that he is due. And I want to clarify that. 
whenever I've been confronted with this discussion, one of the first questions that comes into my mind as I ask it is, which alternative in this scenario makes more of God? If God is choosing his people, in which situation is he greater, more glorious, more powerful? The situation where he looks into the future and bases his decision, his choosing on the choices of one of his creations? Or is he more glorious if he is the determinative factor? He is the one individually calling his people out of a fallen world. That's just something that I keep coming back to and keep asking myself, but the core of what's going on here is straight from God's Word. Paul asks in Romans 9, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God's sovereign choice reveals his glory to us in his creation. Both his power and justice and wrath and his incredible grace and mercy. When our passage tells us that God chose us in Christ, that isn't some special Greek word that we need to study in depth what it means that he has chosen us. It's not choosing the object of the affection because of some innate ability or thing that the object has done first. We didn't catch God's eye because of our abilities, our intellect, or personal holiness. Just like we talked earlier of Jesus choosing his disciples, Jesus didn't go to the synagogue to pick from the best and the brightest students that the Jewish people had to offer. Jesus went all over the place to the tax collectors and to the fishermen and to the people that this world would have otherwise passed over. Paul said to the church in Corinth, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." The message of the cross, the difference between it falling on our ears as utter foolishness to be rejected and it coming as the power of God unto salvation, the difference there is God. The difference there is God 
softening our hearts and giving us ears to hear. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Remember that as Paul is opening his letter to the Ephesians, after introducing himself, his first thought is immediately to praise God for the things that he has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we bless his name? Why do we praise him? We do so because, at least in part, because he has richly blessed us. And James makes it very clear that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And the very first gift, the very first heavenly blessing that Paul wants to praise God for is that he has chosen his people. He has chosen the saints. If he had not chosen us, if we did not already know him, then the gospel would be foolishness to our ears. But if we do know him, if we have been granted ears to hear, and we are truly saints, faithful in Christ Jesus, then he has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless before him. I understand that this is a hot-button topic, and I also understand that there's a decent chance that we will come to the end of our lives and find out from God that we've even gotten things wrong. We are not perfect perfect interpreters of Scripture, but when I look at Scripture, the evidence seems clear to me. But one of the most difficult things in all of this is to address our own humanity. We see God choosing His saints. Lord willing, next week we'll hear about the redemption found in the blood of Jesus, and the following week the inheritance that awaits God's people found in the Holy Spirit. And in our own finite and fallen humanity, to our eyes it seems unjust that an all-powerful and truly good God would not just save everyone. If he could, why doesn't he? Why would God choose to redeem and adopt some unto an eternal inheritance through Christ and choose not to adopt others? Why is one heart hardened while another is given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Ultimately, every single person from Adam onwards is deserving of total damnation. We have chosen death by rejecting God. Our hearts in and of themselves are utterly wicked and opposed to the Lord. But if it is dependent upon God who will and will not choose him, how can, be man, how can mankind be responsible for their choices? As far as our humanity goes, first we can acknowledge that it is a miracle that God would choose to save any. None of us deserve it, for even a moment. All of us, given our own choices, would have heartily rejected God if not for God's work upon our own hearts. So we can thank God that He would save anyone. Beyond that, we also just have to acknowledge that 
He is God and we are not. His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we have to acknowledge the character of our God. Do we believe that our God is holy and just and good and sovereign? If we believe those things, then not one single person will be condemned unjustly. Each will deserve their damnation, and those whom God would save could do nothing to deserve it. It is grace upon grace from our God and our Savior, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He would save those whom He would save. It becomes our prerogative. It's our job as the saints of God called according to His mercy and grace to be like Paul and to first and foremost declare the salvation that He has brought. It is our job to come before everyone and anyone that we can and declare what God has done for His people. And one of the great failings that has come out of this argument between theological camps is some have said, well, if God is going to choose whom he will choose, then I'm not even going to bother sharing the gospel because God already knows who he's going to choose. I look out at our congregation here. I go into the co-op after church this morning, and I see fellow image bearers of the Most High God. I see people who need Jesus, every single one of us. And I see people that I cannot make any judgment or determination whether they have truly known Jesus. I can make educated guesswork based on the fruits of a person's life going, this person has shown themselves to be bearing good fruit in accordance with what we would expect from someone who has trusted Christ. But I don't know. And as such, every single person that we come across should hear and know the truth of the gospel. For we do not know who God has chosen, and we do know that God has chosen to work according to the work of His people. We hear in Scripture that the gospel comes because of those who are willing to preach it. Could God just snap His fingers and save every single person that He has chosen and that would be the end of it? Sure, He could. But He has chosen to work by the means of His people sharing the gospel, being faithful in their confession, and living according to what He has commanded. So we must celebrate the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And we must trust in the character of our God, displayed in his creation and detailed in his scriptures, that he would justify his saints. And then we must live as the ones who are called holy and blameless before him. Our lives must reflect the calling to which we have been called. 
So when we go from here, what are we displaying? Are we living as ones who have been called according to the good purpose of God? The Lord is good. He has saved His people through the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And as we spend time in the Word, as we spend time meditating on the things of God, I hope that each one of us will be motivated to say along with Paul, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with ever, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I ask that you would pray with me and we would thank God for his many blessings. Would the worship team please come? Our God and our Heavenly Father, you have blessed us in ways that are beyond our imagining. You have granted to us the gift of salvation. And Lord, we pray that as we find our salvation in you, as we come to understand the truths that you've given us according to Scripture, that you would write these things upon our hearts. And that we would not use these things as sources of division to be decrying one from another and to call one another down, but that we would take the time to work through these things, take the time to even argue through these things, that we might come to know your truth better and more clearly. Lord, we ask that you would give us humble hearts, to acknowledge our own failings, our own weakness, our own ability to misunderstand. And that as we come to know you, that we would see clearer and clearer what you have done, how you have done it, and that we would glorify you for every facet of it. Our God, you are glorious and you are good. We thank you for saving your people and that you would do so that we might be called holy and blameless. And that you would do so for your own glorious grace. That you might receive all honor and glory and praise. Lord, we thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name.